0: We would like to dedicate this episode of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast to John Black, uh, former president of the New Jersey Native Plant Society.
1: Yeah, yeah. John actually passed away on May twenty second um, earlier this year. Uh, he'd had some health issues, and he was only fifty nine.
0: But he made a huge impact. Yeah, uh, for for native plants and with the Native Plant Society, everyone mm-hmm. knew him and spoke spoke very well and kind of Uh,
1: he was someone we definitely wanted to have on the air and and uh, i'm regretting that we didn't have him on sooner and that we missed our chance because he had some great presentations about spiders and dragonflies and and native plants and he's a wealth of information really helped the whole state of new jersey um come together when it came to native plants
0: he really did and i i know he would have enjoyed coming on here with us and i'm I'm very sorry and sad that that we didn't get that Mm -hmm. opportunity but the least we can do is dedicate this this episode to him so john here's to you you're listening to the native plants healthy planet podcast presented by pine nursery here are your hosts fran kismar and tom Kinesic. <laughs> Welcome to episode 14 of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Today is part 2 of 2 of our Dear Native Plant series. I'm Fran Chismar.
1: and I'm Tom Knesick and before we get into the the meat of the episode, Fran, I, you've really been knocking out a lot of hikes lately. So why don't you fill everyone in on on where you've been going? We
0: have been. You know, and and we've we've kept it pretty local. So my fiance and I since uh quarantining at start and social distancing, once they open parks back up, pretty much every weekend we've been mm-hmm. doing uh a different hike. And um man, I, I it's it's tough to say which one is our favorite. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've done a lot that we've never been to. We've done some that we've been to plenty of times. Um I, I'm wondering, you know, Blueberry Hill. I know mm-hmm. I, I recommended that to you. Blueberry Hill in uh Gibbsboro, New Jersey, uh was a great one. Um What's the Hecken Valley Park in Philadelphia? Very historical. Hmm. A lot of really cool features of that one. And you yeah, can make cool. it easy if you want, or you can make it difficult. Like, you can walk along the water on a big stone road, mm-hmm. or you can go through the woods. You know, it's mm. it's good. But, um, you know, and the nice thing about that park, too, if you pick the right spot, you're parked right outside of DeLisandro's cheesesteak. Yeah. So you can... <laughs> you, nice little post-hike treat. Yeah, post-hike. You're, you're hungry. You can pick up a cheesesteak. And one of my favorites also, but... And I know you were asking about, you You texted me this weekend about Stroller Fest, all the recommendations yeah, yeah, I
1: gave you. We wanted to go on Sunday, and I slept great Saturday night and was up early, ready to go, but uh, uh, my wife didn't sleep as well. <laughs> so we just had a baby, so it's. I think, yeah, it was one month old on Saturday, so it's. Uh, it's still a learning curve for us, and figuring out who's waking up when and... I've had those yeah. mornings, too, where I'm, <laughs> I'm not there, ready to there's, go. There's going to be a lot more of those. Yeah, but Saturday we went to we're, – we're lucky. We actually talked about it here before. about having a great county park system, and we have a county trail that runs almost right behind our house. Uh, the Concora Trail, we went walk walked that, and I took a bunch of pictures and put them on iNaturalist and awesome. saw some cool stuff. That's a great stroller-friendly yes, walk, Yes, yeah, nice too.
0: and paved. I, I really – yeah, let me think about it before you ask me again. Let me think <laughs> about it. So, cuz I was replaying the hikes in my head, I'm like, ooh, if I had to push a stroller through here, yeah. I might be really upset." Yeah. So,
1: <laughs> but but looking back at our last episode, part 1 of the the deer native plants theme, um we had Dr. J. Kelly on. It was a really fascinating talking, took some turns I wasn't always expecting. And um and if you haven't listened to that, I'd urge you to go back and and play it right now before listening to this cuz I think this is a good continuation of that that episode.
0: So, and, and we're back. Did you listen to it? Did everyone listen to it?
1: I think uh, we listened to more than one. Th- yeah, we that,
0: we, man, that was a really long, I think you guys listened to a ton of episodes. Well, I'm glad you're all caught up. Uh, it's amazing to me, really, how this podcast has progressed since we first imagined it and had the idea towards the end of last year. We really wanted to showcase scientific, nonprofit organizations that all of you could get involved with.
1: Yeah, and I really think we've tried to emphasize the science from the beginning. We wanted to come at it from a scientific lens, and unfortunately in today's culture, that's not always the case. People want to believe the science that supports what they like, and um, we might present some things to you that you don't necessarily agree with, but we don't want you to just blindly ignore it. We want you to be cognizant of it, and help it form your opinion. And we don't want
0: you to blindly agree either. Have yeah. your own opinion. You you can agree or disagree with us. That's great. We're just trying to bring you all the all the different angles.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of science going on with with white-tailed deer and um, and with hunting regulations and just wildlife management as a whole. And uh, and that's some of the stuff that we're pre- trying to present to you through this whole deer conversation.
0: So, um speaking of science, we uh <laughs> Did you see the new company called Resting Risk Face? I hadn't, no. So it, I thought it was really interesting because they, since I, I just got a new iPhone 11 that has um, facial recognition, and when you're wearing a mask, it doesn't work. So uh, they said they would actually print your face on a mask so that it would work with your <laughs> iPhone facial re- recognition. But then you go through the whole thing, and at the end, they just go like, haha, it's a joke. Wash your hands. Get a vaccine. <laughs> so went <laughs> went wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Uh, If you're a member of our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook page, you probably have a good idea of what's coming. Uh, As I mentioned before, we wanted to bring a diverse group of Native plant enthusiasts to our table, and we've done a really good job of that. A few months ago, we spoke with Lou Gambali, president of New Jersey uh, National Wild Turkey Federation and even though we had a really good discussion with lou we we wanted to take this in a direction that we thought would hit even closer to home this time we're we're aiming for the fences yeah and that's the the deer fences yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so and yeah with with lou we had a really good conversation but it didn't hit all the points i think we were hoping to hit and um and a little story right after that episode we went back to work and i was out on the golf cart pulling some orders and uh listening to some of the podcasts that i always like to listen and uh, listen to and Um, I heard a representative from the Quality Deer Management Association, and he's going on about all these great native plants and how you can use them in food plots and and how people really need to know their native plants, especially when managing for deer. So I got on my phone and I found the guy on Instagram and I sent him a message and I never heard anything back. And uh, the next week I actually heard another podcast with a different representative from that same organization, QDMA. And uh, I figured, you know, I'll try email this time. And I think I heard back within an hour or two. So, Kip, thank you for responding so quickly. I'm, giving, I'm, I'm picking on Lindsay a little bit because he didn't answer me right away. And uh, I, I just don't think he ever saw the message. But, um, but we're happy to have you here. And, and really, I think you're presenting a, a different lens that complements that last conversation we had with Dr. Jay Kelly um, about how to manage deer herds. Well, well, certainly. Thank you for having
2: me, guys. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and uh, I'm always up for talking deer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So um, before we get started, uh, from what I understand, uh, Quality Deer Management Association (coughs) recently merged with the National Deer Alliance, uh, and have you picked a new name yet? Do you know what –
2: We have not, uh, so, but yeah, very exciting times for us, uh, so, uh, we are super excited to be working much more closely together, um, to be able to provide much more for, for deer and, and habitat management and hunters going forward, and, uh, the next big thing is going to come up with our name, uh. We know that we are keeping uh, the QDMA logo. Um, okay. A lot of history with that. Uh, you know, we're 32 years old, so uh, a lot of uh, accomplishments under that logo. Um, I think it's super cool that it has a buck and a doe. Um, you know, rather than uh, some humongous buck only. You know, mm-hmm. to show that yeah. hey, you have to manage uh, the female side. So we have a logo, no name yet.
1: <laughs> and and for listeners who aren't as familiar with QDMA. How did it start? You said you've been, you've been around for for thirty two years. What brought the QDMA?
2: It really came about. Uh, Joe Hamilton uh, is the founder at the time. He was a wildlife biologist for the South Carolina DNR, and at that back. Back in the late 80s, that was a time period where deer herds across much of the United States uh, were, were well above what the carrying capacity of the habitat was. And uh, and that was in large part because of how we hunted them. Uh, you know, we had been taught to, to protect those uh, to shoot every buck you could. And now what that is it allowed deer herds to just become too abundant. So uh, Joe's take on it was, hey, we, we need to be a, do a much better job uh, managing this. Let's remove some of that pressure from uh, those young bucks. Let's apply it to the analyst side. So we can be much better managers, you know, and balance these deer herds with the habitat, and then also allow a deer uh, bucks and does, you know, to fill the age classes, so that it was a much more natural deer population, uh, you know, the way nature intended. So that's uh, that's how it started uh, as an educational organization to, to teach people more about managing deer and and, and deer habitat, and uh, to teach them to be better stewards of our natural resources.
0: You know, it's funny because when we decided to do this two-part series, we really thought they would be opposing views. And then as we progress into this, we're realizing it's really how closely linked they are. Mm-hmm. They're not really opposing because with the last one we realized, yeah, we have a uh, a high deer density in many parts of New Jersey and overpopulations, but mainly because we've removed all the apex predators and we're not managing it properly. Um, you know and and if you're doing the right thing and you're planting native plants you're you're bringing those deer in you're you're working on the correct ecosystem it's just not it's missing something mm-hmm. so we're 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 excited that that I didn't know that's what my view was going to be yeah, <laughs> when we yeah. started this but it's it's closely working its way to that so um we're curious what kind of brought you to this this part of the world like what what brought you into uh QDA
2: well I, I grew up injured? in yeah I grew up in, uh, in Northern Pennsylvania, um, very closely tied uh, to, to the outdoors. Uh, my father was a hunter, uh, one of my grandfather's was one of my grandmother's was my uncles <laughs> were uh, I grew up in a very rural place and you know everybody I knew hunted so it was just the most natural thing in the world. Uh, realized very early on that, uh, that my passion lay there with uh, you know managing wildlife and then wanting to, to do everything I could to, to be a good steward of the land. So I uh, uh, went to college for it, went to a graduate school for it, um, ended up uh, in Florida, um, oh, in a wild wow. place. So uh, at that time, and this is back in the, the early 90s, uh, you know, there were very few opportunities to be a wildlife biologist uh, outside of a state or a federal agency. So uh, I got a job with the Florida Game and Fish Commission uh worked there for four years uh then uh, was offered the position of deer and bear project leader at new hampshire uh, i had done my mm-hmm. graduate work at the university of new hampshire okay. so i had a chance to go back to the state and work for that state and it was at that time that i learned about the qdma and uh, i became a member immediately started getting uh, the educational resources learning about what it was doing loved the educational opportunities that it offered and how it was teaching hunters and uh, Decided it was time uh, um, to uh, to leave state government, and uh, QDMA offered the first uh, position in the Northeast. And at that point, it was based out of Pennsylvania as a regional director that uh, covered the whole northeastern U.S. So uh, I applied for it, um, got that, and uh, that was 18 years ago. Wow! Been so, uh, a great ride with the organization. <laughs>
0: yeah. One of one of the first things I noticed, actually looking at the website, was the educational aspect, and it's it really. Yeah, and we're going to go into this a little bit later too. It just really blew me away uh, with the educational aspect of mm-hmm. it, and I, I got a lot more out of it than I expected to. So, but one of the things we wanted to start off asking, just since we're talking about deer and and healthy deer herds and and healthy deer habitat, habitat, what are the signs of a healthy um, deer habitat?
2: In many cases, it's it's being able to to look at what's on the ground and see that uh, the, the plant species there are able to to grow um you know the way that they would without being completely browsed to the ground
0: mm-hmm. and
2: uh, for to a layman um you know you if you take a look say if you're in a wooded situation um you know there should be plants growing from the ground you know all the way up through into the canopy there should be you know lots of seedlings there to replace them forest uh if you are in uh, you know an old field situation there should be lots of variety of you know flowering plants and herbaceous plants so uh when those things are removed you know when we see forested uh, areas that have nothing on the understory you know on a browse line uh, those are the examples of uh, hey there's just way too many deer here you know then there there is enough food so it's uh in some cases it's difficult to see that because a lot of people uh have never seen a forest that Mm -hmm. truly should look the way that that it's supposed to or it would uh, if the deer herd were in balance with what that habitat could support.
0: You know it's funny you said that because we actually had someone on our um, uh, podcast Facebook page today kind of make that comment you know and I forget with my age sometimes and what I've lived through and what I've seen that that there are people today that don't know what a healthy forest look like or Mm -hmm. edge habitat look like. They've never seen a healthy edge habitat. They've only seen it where it's devoid of of a shrub layer or it's filled with invasives. Mm
2: -hmm. Now, I vividly remember the first time that I walked into the woods in New Hampshire. um, When I left Pennsylvania, you know, Pennsylvania historically, high deer herds, you know, lots of uh, problems in the the forest environments. When I went to New Hampshire at this time, uh, New Hampshire was one of the only states in the country that were actively trying to grow a deer herd, Um, much lower deer densities than just about everywhere else. And uh, I vividly remember walking into the woods there and thinking, "My gosh, this is looks like a jungle. <laughs> it it like any woods that I had ever been in in my life." And then it wasn't until I had been there a little while that I've, I realized what was going on. This is how a healthy hardwood forest and healthy uh, pine forest is supposed to look. So this is it. If you remove deer, or at least manage deer better this is what you get and i just remember being so thick and birds everywhere and all this other wildlife you know just teeming with this wildlife and realized wow if you do a good job and manage this environment appropriately this is what you get. And uh, so that was a huge eye-opener for me, and uh, it was exactly what I needed as an aspiring deer biologist.
0: It, it, the, all those species can coexist together if it's managed properly. Mm-hmm. You can get the birds and the deer and everything like that. Tom, you you were making a comment the other day about throwing a tennis ball. Where Who did you get yeah, that and that was
1: from? We, we started doing a lot of research, um, and I think that was actually an article that Lindsay Thomas Jr. had written from okay. QDMA um, about taking a tennis ball or a football into the woods and – uh just throw it in any direction and if you could see where it landed you probably didn't have good deer habitat you (laughs) wanted to lose the ball if you could lost the ball then you had had good deer habitat and it's a really good analogy that i think anyone could kind of envision um just you don't even have to bring the ball with you just hey, if i threw something in that direction would i be able to find it if the answer is yes then we need more or fewer probably fewer deer and more plants
0: you know, it, it's funny that you actually mentioned that because this past weekend, when Agatha and I were on our hike, where we were at, <clears throat> there was no understory. There, it was completely lack of understory. You could have thrown that ball. I could have thrown that ball fifty yards. Yeah, and, and, and seen even it.
1: Even when we were hiking on the Concora Trail, <clears throat> it was really interesting because one side of the trail you could see two hundred yards, and then uh, the other side was actually pretty thick. And you can kind of tell where the deer had been browsing and all that.
0: Yeah, and where there was understory, it was all invasives. Yeah. It, it was it was nothing native. So uh, we talked about healthy habitat, and there's there's woods by this house that is really healthy that you can't see five yards in, and it's 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 native. So we drove by there for contrast, and of and of course three quarters of it is now under construction for luxury apartments. <laughs> so it should be interesting just to see how that changes because I'm sure most of that's going to get browsed out Mm because it's even less loss of more habitat. So um, speaking of browsing and habitat, uh, on the last episode, we did discuss plants that deer may not like to eat first. They'll eat last. So if you're trying to plant things that deer won't eat, these. So I thought it was really interesting uh, on the website that QDMA actually educates as to items that deer may not like to eat and if they're eating it, maybe that's a sign that you have an unhealthy habitat or ecosystem for deer. If they're browsing these things, maybe you need to plant other things. And I'm trying to remember what the plant was that
1: uh, they did. Spotted horse mint.
0: That's it. Yeah. That's it. And
1: it was really, I think it. Ex- they referenced spotted horse mint, but deer don't like to eat a lot of the things in the mint family because they just are fragrant and a little bit unpalatable, probably a little spicy. Like when we eat mint, it's got that certain taste. Well, if you're not used to it like a deer would be, then they're not going to always want to eat
0: it. But but the education purpose, like I felt it was interesting that you're pointing out things that perhaps if they're getting browsed, the habitat is lacking the right biodiversity for deer health. It's What what led you to that path of education rather than just saying, plant these things, these things are good, instead of you know showing the way you do it, which I think is phenomenal.
2: As much as anything is by teaching people how to, to use the land, in what is already being provided um, we can have a much bigger impact on the resource because rather than somebody spending you know an average of 250 dollars per acre to plant something by the time you look at lime fertilizer seed and you go through all of that time and resources you just can't plant many acres however you could take that same amount of money and impact you know tens as many acres in an early successional vegetation standpoint by understanding just how to provide or get sunlight to the ground and let that soil bank, you know, expose what is there. And, and I'll say this, I'm not anti, because I used a lot more early successional vegetation in the past. So I'm not anti-food plot at all. I just think that we can be much better managers if we do a better job making sure that we enhance the acreage of these forbs and broadleaf plants for deer.
0: And I agree they will come back. Uh, one of our uh, favorite people, Dr. Emil DeVito, here in New Jersey at New Jersey Conservation Foundation, had done a study. He was talking about how he'd gone through the woods, and as a younger person, it was filled with maple leaf viburnum, and now there was no understory. So they just took an area, and they fenced it off, and they were curious what would happen if they could just keep deer away from that area for a second, and it all came back. The, the, the root biomass was there. The seed bank was there, and everything came back and flourished. So – you know, it just kind of points that if it's managed properly, you can still have all those things without planting, without having to go through and plant it all. If, if you could just manage it properly, it, it will all come back.
2: That's right. And if you take a look, and studies have shown this in a, in a wooded environment, a forest that has an overstory as far as actual food on the understory, you know, just what's available to deer that they can reach, not counting apples and acorns and that, but just browse that's available. In a closed canopy forest, there's only. 50 to 100 pounds of food available per acre. Wow. Now, e- each deer is going to eat about 2,000 pounds of food a year. Smaller deer lead less, bigger deer lead more. But on average, about a ton apiece. So you need a lot of acres of closed canopy forced to feed a single deer so but in a food plot in you know we can have a lot more food than that obviously um, if we do a good job managing those woods and have openings and understory we can kick that up to a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds per acre so good management in woods provides a lot more food now compare that also in an urban successional vegetation standpoint with good management no cost for seed or lime or fertilizer or any of that just good management, we can easily get to three thousand pounds or more per oh, acre wow. of high quality deer food. So suddenly, you know, as far as actually providing tonnage of food, that is the best way to be able to do it on a large scale. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you do that, then suddenly you get better regeneration in your forest because they're not trying to eat every single stem. You know, you don't get as many flowers eaten in the neighborhoods because suddenly you have a much fuller grocery store that's available to those deer in that neighborhood.
0: And and you have a much better ecosystem, too. It doesn't just benefit the deer. It's benefiting the birds and, and all the other animals that depend on that. So you're...
2: Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly right.
0: Now, now one of the things that QDMA advocates for uh, actively is removing invasive plants. So we talked about native plants and what can be used and how to attract them. So what what led to the position of actively uh, advocating for removing and, invasive
1: and plants? And I'm even going to add on to that and... Um, I know you advocate for some other forest management techniques in addition to removing native plants like hinge cutting and and um, kind of creating openings in, in the forest so you'd have a little bit of sunlight through. Can you touch on those as well?
2: Sure. Um, we, we just fully recognize the the problems that invasive species cause. You know, uh, we'll talk about, you know, autumn olive or bush honeysuckle or yeah. multiflora rose, stuff that just takes over, you know, acres and acres of not just – open fields, but, you know, I can show you woods uh, all over the Northeast that are fully uh, are filled with honeysuckle and autumn olive in the understory, you know, under oak stands. So it's, it's not just a field thing, but these invasive plants, you know, take over all of these acres and really uh, reduce the quality of that for a lot of wildlife. So the thing is, we say, hey, you know what? Sure, they provide some cover, but in most cases, they're not providing food but hey, we could remove that invasive, replace it with a native plant that provides food and cover, doesn't give you all of the problems of you know taking over like these invasives do. So it's just much healthier all the way around for all the plants and all the wildlife. So we are we are big advocates for that. And I think in a lot of cases, it's not that people um, won't remove them. It's, in many cases, they just don't understand how bad that plant is there. Or how much better it would be for wildlife if that was replaced with a native. So, so we spend a bunch of time uh, just trying to provide that information to help them make good choices, and and let them know how they can they can replace it with something that's far better for uh, the wildlife that you know that they that they care about.
0: Are there are there states or or even organizations that you f- that you feel are knocking it out of the park that are just doing such an incredible job with with creating habitat and fixing some of these things that they're just having like such a healthy deer herd that it's it's or, or 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 states that have turned it around that that went from having maybe a massive uh, overpopulation problem to actually uh, getting it right
2: uh, yep yeah, there are and actually um, my home state and your neighbor pennsylvania has done a tremendous job over the past two decades uh, at one point pennsylvania was widely recognized as, as having one of the poorest deer management mm-hmm. programs in the country way too many deer for what the habitats could support and uh you know a very young buck age structure today it is far different pennsylvania today does a much better job balancing deer herds with what the habitat can support tremendous age structure on both the buck and doe side and from the habitat side what we're very fortunate in pennsylvania that we have about four and a half million acres of uh, public lands Uh, now a lot of that is state forests or state parks but we have a lot that are game lands that are managed by the Pennsylvania Game Commission specifically for hunting and trapping. And uh, the the habitat crews do a tremendous job across much of our state, um, and especially from a prescribed fire perspective. Within uh, the last few years, they have reinstituted a prescribed burn program and annually oh, wow. burn uh, over 10,000 acres on our game lands, which is extremely good for wildlife habitat. Mm. So, wow. So Pennsylvania has is really knocking it out of the park and, and a lot of cases with that and uh so they have completely turned around and you know, what uh what we had historically here so yeah they do a very very good job of that
0: and i know that's going to vary per area too like i you know i mentioned on the last podcast i grew up in levittown pa which is very populated i never saw a deer in my life <laughs> i think until i I, I want to say I was in my early twenties and I was landscaping and we were working in Northeast Philly and which is even more populated and the backyard butted up to where the police stables were. And we turned around and literally there were 200 deer that came out of nowhere <laughs> and there wasn't an area for 200 deer to be, but they came out, they browsed, they were gone. Like we don't know where they came from or where they went because <laughs> we were in the city. We were, we mm-hmm. were literally in the city. So it's, you know, you can imagine the, the population there and that, you know that was back in the early '90s. I'm sure mm-hmm. that area with that kind of density and and get losing more and more habitat has gotten harder and harder. Yeah. But you have definitely open areas too in PA. Where, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Now, now, Kip, one of the things you touched on a couple times was balanced deer herds. What what is a balanced deer herd? And and um, I I know where you're going with it, but uh, how does removing does from the population go in, or help balance that herd?
2: Well, I think as, as managers, you know, we want to make sure that uh, we don't have more deer on the landscape than the landscape can support. And uh, so uh, we reference, you know, balancing that deer herd with the amount of food and cover that's there so that all the deer get enough to eat so they're healthy and so that they're not negatively impacting that habitat by, you know, removing all of the understory or all of the plants. So uh, that's a, it's a fine line to get to, and, you know, each state's wildlife management uh, agency you know, selects the number of deer they would like to see shot each year so that they can try to keep it at that balance point so there's not too few deer or too many where they are negatively impacting that habitat. So that's really what that balance point uh, references. And, of course, it changes based on the, the quality of the habitat. In areas where you're doing a lot of active land management, you know, you're, you're managing those early successional fields. You're, you're managing the forest. Those places can simply carry a lot more deer and other wildlife uh, than places, you know, that have very little management. So um, it's, it can be a difficult concept for, for a lot of folks to, to realize because everybody wants more deer. You know, there's not a <laughs> yeah. single – every hunter <laughs> wants more deer. You know, not, not every bird watcher or uh, – you know, suburbanite wants more, but um, you know, hunters want to see more. So mm-hmm. it's often a difficult challenge for agencies to to explain to them why they, they shouldn't necessarily always have more. And uh, I'm a hunter. I'm a lifelong hunter. I get it. You know, I'm a walleye biologist, so I understand the science. But on the other side, I'm a hunter, so you know, I never want to see less deer when I go hunting. But yeah. uh, I at least understand the need to, to not have more mm. than what the habitat can support.
0: Yeah, we 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 learned on the last episode that there's places in New Jersey that are they they were saying pre reintroduction like they felt a healthy habitat was 10 deer per square mile and there's places that range between 100 to 300 deer per <laughs> square mile yeah. so, which which isn't healthy, you know, obviously, but you but know, at
1: the same time there's people I know in this town and and other people I've met across the country who say, "Oh, I see you way less deer now than I was when I was a kid but statistically that just can't be true and um, even in my own hunting experience I found that once I started listening to some of these podcasts and learned oh you got to conceal yourself a little bit better play the wind um, maybe even move around a little bit I started seeing way more deer than when I went to the same tree stand every time and went straight from work and smelled and (laughs) probably wasn't doing it how I wasn't doing it in a way that was going to lead me to success i still had some success but not nearly as much as as when uh when i changed things up so um one thing that we have to touch on before uh i know we have a hard stop here but uh, we want to touch on before we we start to wrap up is um your field the fork program and the catching into that whole locavore movement and and um people who want to source stuff from their local environment, go to farmer's markets, go to their local farm stands and and buy things from around here. Well, there's people who want protein too. Um, How have you capitalized with that field-to-fork program on that locavore movement?
2: Well, that is one of the biggest things right now, and all wildlife management is is trying to recruit additional hunters. Um, And that locavore movement is really where it's at, Um, mostly because the vast majority of the U.S. public uh, supports hunting. Uh, About 80% of adult Americans support legal, ethical, regulated hunting. However, only about 4% of the U.S. public hunts. So there's a huge percentage of our population that supports it but don't in many cases simply because they've never been asked to go or they just didn't grow up in a hunting family. And uh, as I said earlier, it was the most natural thing in the world where I grew up was to hunt. That's not the case today. You know, most people today are not exposed to it. We are a more urbanized society than ever before. So people just aren't growing up with the same opportunities. So what we see is there is a lot of people out there you know, in that 20-plus or 30-plus age range that would love the opportunity to, to collect or procure their own meat. Um, they just don't know how. So our field-to-fork movement is all about taking or finding those people who would like that, matching them with a mentor who can teach them how to do that, and then be able to take them actually hunting so that they can collect their their own deer. And what we have, you know, many cases are so many deer. And you guys, your state's a perfect example. You know, New Jersey is the most urbanized state in the country. Yeah. You have high deer herds. You have lots of deer, lots of opportunities. It's the perfect place for people to, you know, don't have to go far at all to be able to hunt, to procure this, you know, high quality protein for their families. And, and that's just a hot thing. And that's we're trying to capitalize on it and be able to teach more people and get more people into it and that's uh, it's the perfect time for something like that.
0: Now is that program available in in all the states? Like is that or is it only certain areas that that that's that's probably- Well,
2: it's a we we have greatly expanded it. We have okay. we started with a model uh, a few years ago where we wanted to see, hey, can we build a program that will work? So we started going to farmers markets and People, hey, you know, would you like to try venison? And that's almost how this conversation always started. It wasn't, "Hey, do you want to go hunting?" It was, "Would you like to try some venison?" People said, "Sure," and then that would lead to a conversation of, "Wow, where can I get this?" Well, in, in the United States, it's illegal to buy it. However, you know, we could teach you to be able to get it yourself. So that's often how we find the hunters. We developed this program in Georgia got to the point where we knew we had a good program and we knew exactly how to run it and teach it so we expanded it to uh, many more states last year okay. uh, and the, the thing is right now is we are looking at taking the next step to really scale this up to where we can get it to people's hands all across the country and really we, we don't have enough employees you know to be able to go around and teach these classes everywhere but we absolutely can get these teaching or these trainings on you know a video or on the web where anybody can look at it, follow the program to then be able to, okay, this is how I mentor somebody else. This is what I should do. Or from the mentor or mentees and Hey, this is, I can watch this and learn you know what I need to know to, to be able to go do this. So, so that's really where we are right now, looking to scale it up to make it available to everybody because we know we have a really good model. Um, we just need to be able to replicate
0: it and a great example for me i think that's an incredible program where i grew up like i said i didn't know anyone that was a hunter but where i live now it's not the case anymore but the the local high school used to give off the first day of hunting season that was a that was one of their holidays and Mm -hmm. and it wasn't unheard of to have people with with gun racks in the back of their their truck (laughs) you know at, at that point so i have a son that you know, the other thing I want to say for me is it's really easy to say you don't like venison if you've never had it cooked mm-hmm. right. <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, once I moved here and, and there's a fair amount of hunters that I work with and you have it done well, it's a big eye opener. So I have a son that wants to learn to hunt, but I'm not a hunter. And I don't know that I necessarily have an interest, but a program like that would be perfect for him to be okay. able to introduce him to to that.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it absolutely would. So yes, that that's exactly what would he, would help him, and um, you know, and I can help uh, help you get him uh, hooked up with something like it or lined up, uh, you know, afterward uh, if you're interested.
0: Oh, that would be I would I would love that. Thank you, thank you. I I really appreciate that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and even I'd I'd heard of the program before, but uh, I didn't know that much about it. And you guys had a great video on your website that I'm going to share in our our Facebook group about how. Like you went to the farmer's market, you had a couple classes, you'd had, then you actually took people out on a weekend. Obviously, that's not going to be able to happen everywhere, but, and then they actually shared in their success. You'd hope that someone would harvest the deer and then they'd share the butchering experience and the tracking experience and, and, um, and then eventually eat it all together and just, it, Hunting is a community where you can really go almost anywhere in the country. Myself, well, even myself, I can go almost anywhere in the country and have a conversation with someone about hunting. You just got to pick up on the cues when you're looking at someone <laughs> that they hunt or not. But um, but it's kind of a a bond that people share wherever you go, and um, it's nice to have bring new people with new ideas in that family. Well, you like
0: mentoring people too. Oh yeah. you would. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's what I, I was going to ask you off air if you had one of these programs in new jersey and if not that i'd definitely want to help uh kick one off if uh if that's possible
2: uh i think it is and uh, I, I think that that would be great yeah. so uh and that's you know the, the fact that it's centered around meat um makes it most uh, enjoyable to people uh, most interesting to people so um yeah and particularly now given all you know, the meat shortages with covid19 mm-hmm. the, you know, I'm, I'm very, very appreciative that, uh, you know, we went into to the spring with a, a freezer full of venison. Uh, both of my kids hunt and then I hunt, so uh, we uh, it, it certainly makes a difference. And I think we're going to see a lot more people in the woods this fall for the same reasons, trying to, to put a little more meat in the freezer. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I really think that COVID-19 has been a game changer for a lot of people yeah. with that, and their they're thinking thinking's so a little bit differently. So I, I yeah. think that's—
1: That was one of the first things you saw when— when COVID-19 hit is everyone started going to buying vegetable plants and said, oh, I'm going to have a big garden this year because I don't know what's going to be at the grocery store in, in May, June, July.
0: And and so, we've talked yeah. about supply chain disruptions, yeah. you know, even as a business that, you know, th- there may be a point where there's not enough business sustainable to keep some of these companies going. So it may get mm-hmm. harder and harder to, to find some of this stuff uh, in stores. So if you mm-hmm. can, whatever you can take care of on your own. Is that more power to you
1: so there's a couple things we like to wrap up with and first is we've just talked to you for almost an hour now how can the public get involved with your program and and help you guys out
2: well we're we're a member-based organization so uh we would love to have them join and they can join right at qdma.com um at the very least i encourage folks if you're interested in deer or wildlife and enhancing habitat um go to our website and you can at least look at all of the resources that we have there information we we want people to have a better understanding of you know, of deer biology and, and how they impact other wildlife and whether you like deer or songbirds or squirrels or something else like deer are impacting you know mm-hmm. those other populations so um we teach people about animals you know how to enhance habitat and you know, like what we can do to be good stewards so uh I'd love to encourage them go and you can look at that all those resources we would love to have them join because uh, the more members we have you know they have access to, uh, to additional things our magazine being one of those things but uh, then it just allows us to have more mission and you know and do more uh, for our, our nation's wildlife resources so uh, I hope folks will, will at least check us out and uh, consider joining
0: I hope so too we're going to share all those links so we'll make mm-hmm. sure on the website uh, people if they want to find it it will be easy to find um and then our last question, we always end every podcast with this question uh, since we are Native Plants, Healthy Planet. Do you have a favorite native plant?
2: And if so, what is it? Man, I'll tell you what. One of I, uh, There are a lot of native plants I really like, but uh, blackberry is high on that list. Ah. And, uh, and I'll tell you, speaking strictly from a deer perspective, uh, blackberry grows almost everywhere that whitetails live. So it's wide, uh, widely dispersed across their range. You know, does great in those full sun environments, so uh, lots of forage for deer, and of course the berries are unbelievable for us, so uh, lots of birds, bears, deer, uh, take advantage of those, so uh, I'm a big blackberry fan.
0: If, man, if, 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 if someone has never picked fresh blackberries from the wild, it ruins you. I, I, every time <laughs> I buy blackberries from a supermarket, they're never as good as what I've gotten from the wild. Like, I keep hoping... That they'll taste as good and they never, ever taste as good. And I almost, I'm disappointed every time. So it's, it's ruined me. I, I like that choice. Thank you, Kip. So we always do a final thought as well. One of the things we always end up with after that last question is um, we give you the floor and, and you can sum things up. Or if there's something you want to promote or if, or if you just want to, one last thing, you can say whatever you want. You have the floor. Uh, you're, you're more than
2: welcome to it. All right. Well, well, I'll say this, you know, I appreciate that what you guys do in, uh, in educating folks about uh, native plants, you know, and, and how good we can do for the environment. And then for a wildlife species, you know, if we enhance native plants, there's certainly a lot of uh, invasive, not even invasive, but just non-native stuff that certainly has value to wildlife. And I, I'm not one to say that they're all bad. However, uh, I challenge anybody who, you know, who finds a non-native one they really like, um, that they can't find a native one that's better. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so, uh, so, you know, there's, there's no reason for that. So um, appreciate what you guys do. We certainly love to see the native species out there. We want to see people involved with, with managing the land and, you know, and enhancing that, not just for deer, but for all wildlife species. So uh, the more that people are engaged, whether it's literally at a bird feeder or hiking or anything you know if they're engaged with the natural resources which means that they're a little more attached to them they understand them a little more and you know that makes them better stewards and that's what's important to us
0: i think that's a great point if you if, if you could just get someone to spend a little bit more time uh and become one with it what a difference it makes and how they view it um you know and, and we really just want good ecosystems we, we'd like to see it improve and not uh get worse and that's the more we can educate, hopefully, the better it gets, and it's 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 fixable. Everything is fixable. We're not we're not past repair. <laughs> we're you know we we really feel that that this is still this is still a uh, doable project. Tom, do you have a final thought?
1: Friend, I'm gonna let you go first. That was pretty much my final thought. <laughs> oh, okay. That that was it. That was it. I, I guess you know that was
0: I just that we're not we're not beyond repair. Mm-hmm. That yeah. everything that we're doing for education purposes um be involved get involved all these great organizations you don't have to agree or be a part of all of them be a part of one of them and make a difference and you know plant some native plants what a difference and help that you're making for local ecosystem and habitat you can start small and work your way up but everyone can get involved with the smallest steps yeah
1: yeah, yeah so for me it's a uh... I think our listeners probably gotten the point by now that through our business, we work with a variety of different groups and even though they might have different reasoning for why they're doing things, they're usually following the same path. And uh, one of the things that really hurts me is seeing how you have a lot of folks that are passionate about native plants or passionate about birds or passionate about deer. And they tend to not get along even though what they're doing, the steps they're taking to accomplish their goal are almost identical. Yeah. And uh, we get a lot further if we work together. And um, but there's one thing that I think they all can agree on, and that's that we need to to conserve more land and, and protect our public lands. And that's why it's really important that everyone goes and uh, calls their their state representatives because we have the Great American Outdoors Act is uh, scheduled for a House vote. Uh, I think early next week. I want to say it's the 22nd. Um, and it's almost got unilateral bipartisan support. It's I, I forget how many bill sponsor it has, but make sure you call your representative and make sure they're supporting that as well. Cause that's going to do a lot to dedicating funding towards a lot of these public lands that people use to go birdwatch. And just about, I think it's every County in the country has some funding that they've used for this program. Kip, you probably even know more than me, but
2: uh, no, I think that's a great suggestion. Uh, QDMA has backed that very strongly. And actually I submitted three more letters to uh, the representatives this morning, um, encouraging them to, to continue to push on that. So, yeah, thanks for uh, for encouraging folks to do that. That is a great piece of legislation for us. Anybody who likes wildlife uh, should support that. Yeah.
1: Right. So with that, awesome. we're we're all wrapped up. So thank you guys for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening about deer management with Kip Adams from the Quality Deer Management Association, soon to be have a new name. And uh, new name. Yeah, you'll keep, you'll know about that when That's when uh, we'll let you know. <laughs> so you can find even more about their organization by visiting www.qdma.com. I really advise you do that. They have a ton of great and and educational information up there um make sure you like their their facebook page quality deer management association on facebook uh at the qdma on instagram and if you thought kip was really cool you want to go follow him um you can follow his facebook page at kip adams on facebook or at kip adams underscore qdma on instagram so thank you guys for listening to native plants healthy planet presented by pineland's nursery Ooh, you did good as, we promised, back. as <laughs>
0: promised, we're we're switching back. So I'd like to give a great big thanks to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery. Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ. Instagram at Pinelands Nursery youtube at pinelands nursery and let's not forget the native plants healthy planet facebook group we're going to keep this conversation going after this one
1: yeah and you can listen to native plants healthy planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. you can also check us out on podbean apple podcast leave us five star review while you're there um, spotify google play stitcher tune in uh, youtube or you can just ask alexa to play the native plants healthy planet podcast thanks everyone i'm tom
0: and I am Fran Kip. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh,
2: Absolutely, my pleasure, guys. Uh,
0: thank you, <laughs> and and thanks again to everyone. We'll see you again next time. Until then, keep it native.